Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our sixth episode of 2023 with me, uh, Nicholas Bear Lumblad, and with B. Richard Allen. Great. So one of the things that we recurrently come back to uh, in our show is to talk about the craft, the actual practice of public policy and public affairs. And of course, one of the most important things you do is that you constantly interact with the legislative process. And, you know, at the heart of uh, at the heart of it, this is about meetings. What kinds of meetings do you try to get? What do you do in the meetings? How do you intervene? And so, so what's your view? You've been on both sides of this. What, where do you think people are doing this right, whether they're doing it wrong, and what are the intervention points? I mean, I'm having a very sort of interesting experience right now with the UK Online Safety Bill that, uh, you know, I was um, a member of the elected house of the British Parliament sort of, sort of way back in the day, and and I remember sort of being lobbied then. And then I went to the dark side, <laughs> to the industry side, and I was sort of there for a number of years. And now I'm back on the legislative side in the unelected chamber of the UK Parliament, and I'm having people coming and lobbying me around this thing, the online safety bill. See, so it's really interesting for me now to observe what's effective and what's not effective. Uh, and then hopefully if we play that back to people who are in this business so they can start to think about their own uh, practices. And I would say, um, yeah, I mean, just headline is, I can now see the kind of mistakes that I used to make when I was on the other side <laughs> and how um, a lot of what we do is not effective because it's asking for the wrong things at the wrong time. So maybe that's, mm. the, that's the sort of headline theme is you need to ask for the right things at the right time, not the wrong things at the wrong time. And now we can it dig goes, into oh, what that means. It, it's so good because it goes back to this thing that we've come back to several times, which is that logistics beats strategy every time. Yes. If you know what to do and when to do it, then you're going to be well off. But if you have this grand strategy and it's not anchored in logistics, it's going to be really hard to get anything done. Yeah, yeah. And, and the first thing is, again, just headlines, everyone comes to the party too late. I mean, that's just, mm -hmm. and we know that we've done that. It's, it's only when legislation is in front of a parliament that people suddenly start paying attention. And yet for most of what you want to get done, by the time it's reached the parliament, it's too late. Yeah. Uh, and there are various reasons sort of for that. But, um, and again, I, as I was thinking about this, I think uh, the other thing is you've got to understand the parliamentary system you're in and crucially recognize that there is a huge difference between the US Congress and mm. pretty much the rest of the world. Uh, and again, that's quite important, I think, in this context, because a lot of obviously we're dealing with a lot of uh, American led companies, global companies, but with American leadership. And their lobbying model is an American model, naturally. And it works really quite differently. Uh, in the US from in the UK or Europe or other parliamentary system. One of the things that I think is really important in what you said is that there are different parliamentary systems because in the US Congress, if a bill is introduced, the chances of it passing is actually quite slim. Uh, it's like it's single digit percentages. And so that's very different from a directive that's being introduced by the European Commission, for example, where the likelihood that it's going to be passed in some shape or form is above 90%. Um, or at least well above 80%. So as you approach this, as you say, in some cases, when the directive hits or when the proposal hit or when the bill hits in a system outside of the US, so much has been negotiated and put in place that it's really late to the party. But if a bill is introduced in the US Congress, it's like, well, it's an opening bid and a negotiation and we should all have a chat about it and see what it what it means. And And so I think... 
as an American company, especially, that's probably a challenge, don't you think? Yes, I think that's exactly it. In, in a sense, um, the negotiation in the US is in public and it starts with the publication of a bill. The negotiation in Europe, UK and most other parliamentary systems is in private and it ends with the publication of a bill. So by the time you publish the bill, you've already finished the vast majority of the negotiations. That's fundamentally different. The other thing I've, I've noticed is Look, the US lobbying model tends to be to try and get things out of a bill. And that's what, so at the moment with the online safety bill, people are saying, look, you've, you've got too many powers, British government. Uh, you've got the power, we think, to require removal of encryption, for example. You must take that out. And that's, I think, again, miss it. in the US, I understand that. In the US, there's this sort of c- concern. You put forward a proposal that says the government shall interfere in all these kinds of ways. And then people lobby to say, no, that's overreach. And there's a sort of reasonable audience to say, let's prune back. I I was just thinking in the run-up to this about examples of European legislation where the final bill has been less intrusive than the original proposal. (laughs) And I can't find them. (laughs) Because the the dynamic is, look, you're regulating to take power. You, You know, that's why you do it. You want to transfer power from the regulated entities, whether that's internet companies or banks or whoever, to the government. The government is mm. taking power to itself to tell regulated entities what to do. And and as the legislation goes through, what you see is people saying, oh, we haven't got enough power here, or we haven't got enough power there. So nearly all the amendments are coming from people worried that it's too weak and they want more power. And yet mm. you have then a tech company coming in saying, no, 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 I, you've said you want this power, but I want you to to sort of drop it and decline to take that power. And it's it's just not... It's not compelling. It doesn't get traction. And, and I think this is peculiar for tech policy as well, because you can imagine many companies in the US that will tag on things to a bill because they want this extra subsidy or they want a regulation that will create an entry barrier for competitors from other nations. So so for many other uh, lobbying cases, if you look sort of outside of the tech uh, sector, they are going to be piling on, especially in the US, you know, there's like the, the sort of the notion that you're tagging on to to a bill in order to serve special interests is quite quite well established. But especially in tech policy, that's always been the ethos to some extent, that, uh, that, you know, pairing back is what the companies do and adding on is what the government does. But is the solution to that then not to ask for the government to have less powers, but try to distribute the powers to the people you think are most reasonable in government? What's the better approach? Exactly. I think so. So I think just from a pure legislative point of view, I think if you go into the debate saying assuming that somehow you can go from a bill that takes 20 powers to prune them back so you end up with one where the government only takes 15 powers and you can knock them out is unrealistic just assume actually they're going to start with 20 they're going to end up with 25 (laughs) because people are going to add other bits on and so the question becomes how do you make it so that those new powers are workable for you and you have to have good rational arguments so you can you can make some changes potentially around how those powers are going to be exercised about your relationship with the regulator what i don't think you could do or you're setting yourself up for failures to say i you know somehow i can remove those powers that happens in the us again i was to give other examples i think it was donald trump rolled back some regulation about the amount of water or energy or energy and light bulbs and things like that. you know th- things that were sort of green regulation where he said that's unnecessary we compare it back i think the banking regulation in the u.s actually was paired back wasn't it that they they've tried yeah. to make it less onerous 
again, I, I, if people have got examples, I'd love to hear them. But I do not hear, I'm not, I'm not aware of any examples in all my years of Europeans and the United Kingdom making regulations substantially less onerous through that process. So assume that the powers on the bill as published are going to be taken by the government. Maybe, uh, well, actually, quite likely you're going to see some extra ones added during the process extraordinarily unlikely that they're going to forego any powers that they put in their original version. Uh, so, so don't set yourself up for failure by assuming you can get rid of them. But think about how you can best work with them it, it, on the assumption they're going to happen. And so how do you make mm-hmm. them as, as workable, in, in not just in your interest, but in the public interest? How do you make sure that you, you have a good argument for saying, look, you need to exercise the power in this way in order to benefit the public rather than your own company. I, so there are two things about this that I, I'd like to come back to the question of how you how you can affect the number of powers being proposed in the bill in the first place, which is prior to it actually becoming a bill. But I also think there's something really important in what you're saying now that's worth highlighting, and that is you can change the bill on the axis of quality, but not scope. Yes. So you can make it substantially more qualitative. And that's actually a really important win. Because what that means is that you have better regulation. And if that's what you're doing when the bill is published, if you're trying to constantly improve the quality of the legislation so that it becomes more workable, more effective, and achieves the outcomes that the legislature has set out to to achieve, then that's a better path. It's hard to sort of exactly know what that is, and there will be overlap and it's fuzzy borders and all that stuff. But that's a better argument when you come in to, to, to lobby someone like you and say, look, here's a way to make this legislation better rather than here's a way to pair this legislation back. That's, is that, that's, that's, it, that, that's exactly it. And I would just qualify. There, there is one set of circumstances under which the legislation does get paired back, and that's when there's significant dissent within the governing party or coalition about the legislation. So so again, just to give you a concrete example, the online safety bill, originally its scope included stuff called legal but harmful content. So it wanted to make Mm. the platforms not just deal with illegal content, but stuff that was deemed to be harmful. There was significant dissent within the governing party. They removed those provisions. But interestingly, (laughs) ever since then, they've had buyer's remorse and they've been progressively amending the bill to almost get us back to, you know, they haven't, they're not, explicitly saying it's in scope but everyone's like oh how do we how do we sort of you know put things back in that make it look a bit more like the original version with the original powers so so say just to qualify that the the the, if you were going in and saying like i actually want to remove powers you will not succeed unless a significant faction in the governing party or coalition uh, and 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 this is a, such an interesting example too, I think, because yeah. because the 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 example here is one where the legislation runs into an overarching principle of of law, which is you know in this case I think free expression, um, yeah. and you know is this really who we want to be? Is this really how we think that legislation should look? And and if it can become this sort of ideological issue then maybe you have a chance of pairing it back but that's fairly rare i agree with you yeah um, i'm sorry i just say it's ideological and political let's be really honest and, so the, yes. the, the governing party is a conservative party in the uk that worries about lefty american platforms shutting down their own speech so it is mm. they are both standing up on the principle of free speech and saying yes. don't censor us <laughs> And so there is a there's a sort of practice. You should always recognise that there's like a self interest as well as a public interest in, in all. Yes, yes, they do, when they align, it's a very powerful thing. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
So, so let's let's come back to the question of how you know at some point somebody decided there should be twenty powers in this bill. Yeah. Uh, so, how do you? What's the prophylactic here? How do you sort of yeah. uh, make sure that you sort of work through uh, government in such a way that when the bill comes, it doesn't actually have twenty, but perhaps fifteen yeah. or ten? What's the point of intervention there, and who do you talk to? Because it's yeah. it's not the minister, right? Yeah, I would say three three words. Uh, so first, it's not the minister. No, it's. Uh, I think the online safety bill we've had like four different secretaries of state and three prime ministers. It's like it's you know, ministers come and go. Um, uh, officials who, who draft this stuff stay, and so the, the key people tend to be officials and people in the regulators that will end up doing the regulation. And de- depending on the country, there's a kind of mix, but there tends to be a. A traffic. There's a, there is a community of people, for example, in the UK, uh, in government, both in the the government departments responsible for this and the regulator, who who are the experts, the technical experts on on how you could create a workable regulation. And then there's a community of people in the non-governmental space. And in the UK, for example, the online safety bill has very much involved people in in the non-governmental space an organization called Carnegie Trust has been very influential so you can see the mm. you can see where the experts are and they're having an expert conversation about how to create workable regulation they're the people actually you know policy officials ngos and regulators are the ones who you know, beyond politics have the strongest interest in creating something workable because they're going to have to implement it. So that's where you should yeah. focus your effort. And and probably the three maxims are early, mm-hmm. uh, specific, and public interest. Those are probably the three magic words. So early, like you just can't get in early enough. Really key decisions about the design of the UK, UK on life safety bill were made, you know, three, four years ago. Uh, we we both tracked the uh, data protection rules in the European Union. The data protection rules, the key decisions around GDPR, were made years before. And I think the same model applies. They were made by expert officials, by people working in data protection agencies, and by uh, NGO advocacy groups. They were making the key decisions about the design of the GDPR years before it was ever published. So early... Uh, the second is specific. Again, like if you, it, it, now we're getting specific examples of people saying, "Oh, you know, if you bring in this thing on encryption, it'll break Service X." Well, that's a bit late. If if you've got specific examples where something is going to break something, and and that's it's something we really should be worried about, bring those up early while you're thinking about the drafting the legislation, so you can change the drafting if you don't want to break yeah. something. Uh, if that's the real intention. And then the last one is public interest. Again, you've got, got to be really clear what the public interest is for the thing you're arguing. So come back to mm-hmm. my encryption example. You know, um, the public interest, there is a strong public interest in in identifying people circulating child sexual abuse material and stopping them. There is a strong public interest in people having private communications the debate needs to be around those public interests. And when I hear some of the counter arguments, they're things like, oh, this legislation will set a precedent for oppressive regimes in another country. That's kind of not really about the UK public interest. You know, I get it. I might argue that, but it's not really strong. Or uh, my company can't do it. It'll, It'll be bad for my company. Not public interest. You know, the public interest debate is, is trying to weigh up the equities between the 
catching the abusive person and the privacy for the non-abusive person and how we so, so early specific public interest i think is the three watchwords i put around that I, I like this i think there's a there you can sort of double click on one of, of all of these but i think the early and the public interest are the ones I'd like to come back to early, I think, is interesting because often when we're forced to prioritize as public policy professionals, we go with what is currently the hottest issue, which means that we go with what is currently the most progressed issue that we see clear as that's the threat. And there's a really good argument in what you're saying for setting up a venture lobbying portfolio where yes. you're essentially saying, here are a number of startup initiatives that I think will be really important. And I know that out of them, eight out of 10 will probably not be anything, but the two out of 10 that actually become something. The reason I'm looking at this is that if I'm in early, I'm going to have a chance to really impact the way the regulation goes. So every public policy team should have a venture lobbying portfolio. Uh-huh. They should have these really early things that they invest in and that they look at knowing that eight out of 10 will be nothing, but the two that really become something, you're going to be so glad you were in early. Yeah. So that, that to me seems to be one conclusion. I, I really like that, Bob, just to say that, because it is, yes, if you... You know, everyone knows in the venture capitalist world that you can really shape the direction of the company if you go in at Series A. If you yeah. just come in later with a big bag of money and buy a bunch of shares, <laughs> then you're not the same. And, and a lot of the lobbying is somebody coming along very late in the day and saying, well, I'm going to buy some shares of a publicly traded company. It's equipment yeah. to that, which is, yeah, you can have influence, but not in the same way you would if you'd been in at Series A. Uh, so you some... should be able to answer the question if you're leading a public policy team what's your venture lobbying portfolio like yeah. what are the 10 things you're tracking in such early stages that your influence is maximized even if 8 out of 10 9 out of 10 don't become anything and the, yeah. the other thing I'd like to come back to is the public interest because I think there is we've often come back to in, in this uh, in this podcast the notion of harms um, yes. and, and you've sort of kept us honest by asking what the harm is and I think that one of the things you can do if you get in early is that you can not only only identify the harm, which I think is really important, but the mechanism through which the harm occurs. Why is this harm? So I think this is important for things like if we had um, been earlier on the discussion about misinformation, uh, we would have said, okay, misinformation is a harm. Well, exactly what does it do? What's the mechanism that we're worried about here? Because if you're forced to elucidate that, you're actually also forced to say what would be effective in meeting this particular harm. So in misinformation, for example, I tend to believe it's not so much the volume of misinformation as the risk of misbelief. In fact, that people might actually believe things that are not true or be unable to form beliefs or be misled in different ways. And if you sort of start to study that, then you can see that the real answer is not removing misinformation, but reintroducing sources of authority. So as an example, I think what we do when we look at the public interest should be to focus on the harms and the mechanisms that plausibly could generate those harms. So there's like a, a causal model And then once we have that, we can probably agree. Most people don't like misinformation. Most people don't like harms overall. We can probably agree that here's how we best address them. And that's only possible if you do it early, because the later you're in the process, the more it's all about the harm and not about the mechanism at all. I think it's a good one, because I think the more you have consensus around what the harm is, and that, that is so difficult, and people don't, they assume that they have a common view of a harm when they don't. And it's only through like a a really challenging process of debating and discussing and getting into working groups and really thrashing things out that you you can actually come to a view as to whether or not you do have a consensus around the harm. 
And then you need to go in and say, okay, let's test all the possible solutions. And then again, do we have a consensus about what's effective and what's not effective? Because a bunch of things that we think will be effective, we may end up discounting. And the Mm -hmm. and the worst kind of legislation is the legislation which uh, uh, has a very shallow. Well, there may not even be consensus on the harm, and then you have a very shallow view of what the solutions are. And I have to be careful here to be um, be respectful of my colleagues. But but one of the things that's kind of interesting to observe is look, a lot of legislators come to these problems very late in the day themselves. They haven't had the time. I mean, they're busy and they haven't had the time to sort of work through it all. And they're seduced by uh, apparent simple solutions to what are very complex problems. So yes, mm. going in early with the people that you disagree with <laughs> and having a really, yeah. really like detailed discussion about all of the complexity, peeling back all of the layers, I think is one of the most useful things you can do because you're more likely to end up with good legislation. And I do have to, again, cite my favorite example of bad regulation, the cookie banner, where, (laughs) where, again, I I think there kind of was a, a view of the harm. I think the harm of the people who promoted it was the harm of online behavioral advertising. But it, but they didn't really bottom it out. Some people thought they were doing that. Others thought that they were doing something else. Uh, and then the solution was no one had really sort of worked through it properly and said, look, we'll just make an assumption. We'll stick the banner up. Everyone will say no. The online behavioral advertising industry will die. And that was such a shallow analysis and, yeah. and has patently failed. And that's the thing that you're right. We risk doing in lots of other areas. Misinformation is another one. Very shallow analysis of what might work and if we could do what anything the harm else actually is, yeah. and what the harm actually is yeah you haven't even agreed on the harm if you're on the left or the right the political spectrum you may have quite a different view of what the harm is depending on where you sit on the political spectrum there's no real mm. consensus around it and the cookie banner example is also interesting because there the, there was a theory of harm and that's i think you have to have a theory of harm you the can't harm, just say yeah. here's the harm you have the theory of harm and the theory of harm there was that cookies were being collected surreptitiously and that if you told people that cookies were being collected less cookies would be collected and that was just that was just wrong um, yeah. and i think at some point it also behooves the government to go back and test their theory of harm that's why it would be good practice although it's unlikely to happen, to have a strong articulated theory of harm with a series of hypotheses in it in legislation or prior to legislation. And that's part of what you can do if you get in early. You can force that articulation of a theory of harm. Hard, but certainly worth it in many cases, I think. It is. And that's, I mean, one thing, one one small victory I think I've had in the online safety bill uh, where I have been banging on about cookie banners is, we're, you know, part of the bill is about introducing age assurance technologies uh, to try and legitimate aim of trying to prevent uh, particularly younger children stumbling on material that will be harmful to them. Um, uh, one of the things I sort of propose, I think has been adopted, is that there should be a process of reviewing the costs and benefits of different kinds of age assurance mm. technologies and seeing whether or not they're effective uh, and then defining what effective means. Because effective, effective means... Uh, that it is less likely that particularly younger children encounter material that is highly harmful to them. It's not. It's not a tick box. Did you did you have a age assurance check? Uh, it really is about an outcome, and the outcome is. I'd say I, I, you know, certainly agree that stopping younger children uh, hitting pornographic content and things like that absolutely is something we should be trying to do. But but we need to test whether or not we've achieved that outcome. Not. 
you know, did we get a load of people to fill in a bunch of forms or send in ID documents? That's the wrong test. And, <laughs> and, and it's also helpful to come back to look at second and third order effects. Like yeah. what actually happened here? And does this mean that there's a lot of data about underage children yeah, exactly. in the hands of companies outside of the country, etc.? So yeah. there's like the, the need for evaluation gets us back to this question of the quality of the regulation, which seems yeah. to be the more promising vector to sort of come in with so so let's go back to the process we've we've noted that you you should have your venture lobbying portfolio you should yeah. have a theory of harm you should be in early right you should really try to be in early and then when the legislation hits the discussion will not so much be about pairing back as about increasing the quality of the provisions and the efficiency of the intended outcomes in some way yes. now uh, so so let's let's be very concrete somebody comes in to you and they've requested a meeting with you to to discuss uh, the online safety bill what are the three worst mistakes that they make except for sort of trying to just say <laughs> pair things back um, do they talk too much do they do they come with talking points that you could have predicted do they not tailor it to you as a person what what are the things that people yeah. typically do wrong you might need to ask them how they experience me as well so i think i think the things that people <laughs> typically do wrong is that they they labor uh well they, there are two things they do one one is they sort of use edge cases sometimes to 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 kind of divert from being able to do something fundam you know that's fundamentally helpful uh and so i'll give you a very specific example which has come up and uh not to embarrass anyone but you know, when you talk about doing things at the mobile phone layer so at the mobile phone level in order to protect uh young people you, the edge case is well some people share phones so some phones may be used by a younger person older person yeah some people do but very few people in the United Kingdom <laughs> do that. You know, try, try and get a, ask your thirteen or fourteen year old to share a phone, and they will, you know, yeah, they'll, they'll just grab touch. onto it with their little fingers until you pry it from them. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So, so that's just one example. It's like, oh, but yeah, well, yes, in one percent of cases, X will happen, but that's not a reason not to resolve it in ninety nine percent of cases. So that's the edge case thing, and then and then perhaps the worst thing is, you know, I can't do what what you're what you need me to do uh without offering an alternative that's the critical piece so again very current at the moment looking about encrypted services it is true that a true end-to-end -end encrypted service cannot read the content of a message to understand whether or not it's bad content in normal circumstances but if that translates to and that means that these really bad people uh, are just going to carry on using my service and there's nothing I can do. That's like, you know, so not persuasive. That's a red rag to a bull. That's a right, fine. Then I'm just going to, you know, push even harder. If instead you say, look, yes, technically, unfortunately, <laughs> the thing you want me to do is not possible, but here are some other things I could do because your aim is legitimate. I think it's that recognition that the policymakers aim is legitimate and, mm. and, so and that they have a right that. to yeah yes. and they have a right to expect your help I, I i used to characterize it sometimes in in some of the emails that you get which is um you know dear policymaker, have you come up with this proposal because you are a evil or b stupid and yeah. and like this is it's really and i understand it but it's just not a great way to begin a conversation that's you've come up with this proposal because you you're a genuine person who cares, for example, about children in the United Kingdom and keeping them safe online. Start with that. The thing you're asking for technically 
doesn't work with the way I've configured my technology at the moment. And here are some reasons why I think I think we do need to keep this technology available. But given all of that, here's a bunch of other things I could do. I can work closely with your child safety agency so that if there are people who are, you know, abusing my service, even though I can't read their content, I will still work with your agency to make sure that we shut them down. Start, just say, I don't want child sexual abusers on my network. Just just say that. <laughs> it's okay yeah. to say that. Say I understand where you're coming from and then say within the limitations of what I can do technically, I'm going to show willing. Uh, uh, and I say I the conversation often never gets beyond that. Well, here's 20 reasons why I can't do what you want. Like, yeah. <laughs> to a policymaker. But establishing common ground. I mean, and then the policymaker is like, well, that seems very much to be your problem, not my problem. It's like, <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, and obviously you're telling yeah. me I should take more powers, you know, really. Because yes. <laughs> you're not willing to cooperate. Therefore, m- my conclusion is not, oh, well, just give up this power because you've said you can't do it. Oh, right, fine. You know, they're not going to say that. Yeah. They're going to say, look, I'm the government. <laughs> you're a private company. So if you're telling me, you know, this is not possible. I'm just going to take some more powers. Thank you very much. And establishing that common ground is such a, it's, it's a, yeah. a really important thing to do. There's a, there's a principle of argumentation that I really like that comes from uh, philosopher DC Dennett, who said that you're sort of, if you want to be intellectually honest, the first thing you should do is to state your opponent's case in such a way that they thank you for the clarity and precision with which you stated it. That's After brilliant. that, you can yeah. start arguing, right? And yeah, yeah. and if you were to do that in a meeting and say, here's what I think you need to do or what you're trying to do, and then also recognize that this is legitimate and here's how I can help you do it, but I won't be able to do this. It's a much better approach than saying that, you know, this is impossible and the law can't force me to do something it's impossible because yeah. the law can. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> I think yes. that's brilliant, Nicholas. I think that if that's the nugget for anyone to take away, it's that. Yeah, so if, you, if somebody came in to me and said, you know, y- you want to stop people circulating child sexual abuse material, uh, um, you're mm. struggling with how to do that with the growth of encrypted services like mine, I recognize that's a real problem for you because you have a duty to your citizens to keep them safe, particularly children. Uh, and I, I, that's entirely legitimate. And I entirely understand why you're doing what you're doing. There's a little sort of technical hitch around the way that you've proposed to do it. But here are some alternative mechanisms that we could use. That's a fundamentally different conversation from, you know, and again, as I characterize that, it's almost, there's nothing we can do. And, uh, uh, the world is going to fall apart if you try and make us do that thing. That, uh, or we'll, or, we'll or, withdraw from your market or yeah, uh, any or, number of different... Yeah. yeah. Or, or you're setting a precedent for other countries. Again, that's, that I should caution on that one. That, I, I find that one really difficult. I've had that conversation as well. Look, you know, um, where a country has bothered to sign up to a human rights uh, legislation and has created a framework... I think it's perfectly reasonable, actually, that they can take to themselves powers that that would be really uncomfortable in other countries that don't have a human rights framework. But you, could, but I think you have to make that distinction. A country that has a really good, robust rule of law and human rights framework, where people can challenge everything, where in the case of the United Kingdom government, everything it does, if it intrudes on your privacy, has to be necessary and proportionate under the terms of Article 8. And if you think it's not, any citizen can test that. And the and the courts are fair. And they will, they do and often will strike down government legislation if they think it's wrong. That is a different world from another country where 
yes, those same powers would be really problematic because that country doesn't have a human rights framework. And again, from a tech company point of view to say, well, you know, the power you're taking could be really dangerous in country B is fine. I'm not in country B. I'm in country A. Also, <laughs> I, I mean, I used to really like that argument uh, because I thought it was sort of you need a certain example yeah. for the rest of the world kind of argument. And I, I, I really felt that you know that was a fair thing to say to people who who were introducing things that on a slippery slope would end up in one or another. And then yeah. one, one thing that turned me off that argument um, was that I tried to find cases where uh, an oppressive regime had introduced powers referencing what had happened in the democracy and yes. the baseline is i didn't find any i mean it's not as if you have this oppressive regime and they introduce a surveillance system that's maximal and they said we are doing it because they did it they're yeah. saying we do it because we think this is right and we have the power to and we're preserving our regime and th they don't need that external validation um one of the sort of perks of being a an authoritarian regime is that you rarely need the approval of the outside world <laughs> so it's yeah. like the, the baseline there is uh, see, just seemed off to me when i started to look at the actual numbers i didn't find any good examples of a yeah. of a government arguing that i think there might be examples of sort of slippery slopes in international multilateral organizations but but they're not material and as you say there's a distinct difference between countries where rule of law is at the heart of governance and countries where it's not yeah and i think again it's, it is not compelling to say i can't do anything to help you democracy with rule of law catch child abusers just in case it gets copied by other country who want to use a similar method to get hold of dissidents. Like the answer is say yes to my child safety police and say no to their secret political police. Yeah. Like that's fine. You can do that as a company. It's okay to do that. But, but don't, don't say I can't do a, because I would have to do B. Like yeah, there's a general overappreciation of the power of the slippery slope argument, yeah. I think, across not just sort of authoritarian democratic regimes, but generally when you're sort of discussing legislation, the slippery slope argument feels very comfortable because you can say, well, if this, then maybe this. But it's in the nature of the legislator's role to think that they can draw bright lines. Yeah. So they're not worried about slippery slopes. They're like, yes, you're going to slip here, but here's my bright line and you're all going to slip beyond it. You just need to see the legitimate interest I have. Uh so, again, so the argument uh, fails. Right? It does, and and again to turn so, so I think again to turn it round, it's legitimate as you said earlier, like that other democracies might comp copy a democratic uh, method. Yeah. So yes, what Australia does might get copied by Canada, might get copied by the United Kingdom. But again, if you were turning that round and trying to have a positive conversation, you would say, look, the power you are taking is potentially open to abuse. I recognize that in your country, you have all these checks and balances in place. So let's look at how those work here. And let's look at what a, a good model is of checks and balances that you need in order to make that power acceptable. And, yes. and that's, you know, again, I want some change to legislation. I want to make sure they're all listed. I want to make sure that it says, when you take on a power to order tech companies to do things, we're going to reference the fact that everything must be proportionate and consistent with human rights law and data protection law and blah, blah, blah. So you, you start putting, you start making all the safeguards explicit. And then if country B wants to do the same thing, you say, well, you also need to have all of these safeguards in place, but you don't start by saying you can never do it. You start by saying, if you want to do it, here's how to do it in a way that's reasonable.
Right. And I think there's another aspect of this that I think is really interesting. And, and that is at, at some point when you're when you're discussing these things, you, you have to you have to focus on what the um, uh, we said the legitimate interest, but you have to focus on uh, the intent, the long term intent of what the legislator wants to not just this bill, but in the framework of what they're trying to create generally. And so I think that's another thing people often miss out on. They think this particular bill is the only thing they care about, not the entire legislative agenda. Right. So there's a problem there too. Yeah. So so uh, we've talked a little bit about the worst mistakes people can make. Yeah. Um, uh, what is the single most effective way people have approached you? Now you think is that, yeah. that was, you know, we talked a little bit about what they should do, but maybe there is something that they've come up with, something that you think was really effective yeah. Is there something that sort of, because the consistency argument seems to be an interesting thing, for example, this is, you're asking me to do one thing here and another thing over here, it would be great with the clarification, that kind of thing, that, that, is, that is often something one has to respond to, right? Yeah, so I'm, I'm uh, actually going to be speaking this afternoon on, um, on uh, how the online safety bill might affect services like Wikipedia. Which I don't think, I think is the intent, I think the, the, the bill is targeted at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those sort of services, but it's used a definition of what they call a user to user service. And people, they can look at my speech uh, at parliamentlive.tv if they want to see where I'll sort of go into ah, detail. But I think they've inadvertently, inadvertently sort of swept in with that definition of services like Wikipedia and will make life difficult for them. I think Wikipedia, they, they did a really good job because they've come and they've explained why this is problematic. They've got a really sort of strong public interest. They're not they're not doing it in a, a, a threatening way, but they are they are pointing out, you know, firstly, sort of genuinely asking, was it your intention to bring us into scope? Uh, and secondly, sort of pointing out why their model would make it extraordinarily challenging to do the kind of things that you might expect a Facebook to do. So they've raised some really genuine, legitimate questions. Uh, I, and I think that, I mean, it kind of helps in a way. It sort of helps if you're a non-profit foundation. Blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's cheating, right? You're, that, you're, yeah, you're, you're... <laughs> no, but, but again, I think the tone in which they've done it, and I find it's quite, the, the argumentation is sort of quite straightforward uh, yeah. uh, for doing that. So, so as I say, I think that's, that's an example of, of trying to present your argument well uh, and, and doing yeah. it in terms of the public interest and, uh, trying to look at the technical details of of how the legislation works assuming good faith assuming that the mm. policymaker's intention is not to destroy wikipedia and if they do it'll be accidental rather than deliberate yes. so i think there's something uh, assumption of good faith but you're right i think that there's the fact they're a non-profit sort of changes the debate to a certain extent but i, I also think even even sort of for-profit companies could come in more in that tone where yes. where the tone is uh, not are you um, evil or stupid, but um, ooh, whoops! I think you may have made a mistake here. <laughs> Let me help you try and fix it, uh, which is yeah. a much better tone. Maybe that's the that's the bit I'm trying to pull out. Yes. Well, in the interest of making sure that democracy soldiers on, we're going to let you go. And yes. uh, thank you so much for, for this. And uh, you can find this on your website, which is www.regulate.tech. Thank you very much.